0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. There are probably many differences between Hollywood movies and biblical stories. But one of the, the most striking out there is probably the ending as you look at the endings of Hollywood movies and the ending of biblical movies, that there's a striking—or excuse me—biblical stories. There's a striking difference between the end of a hero in a movie and the end of a hero's life in the Bible. Hollywood oftentimes ends with the hero riding off into the sunset, living happily ever after, whereas biblical stories oftentimes end in death. Hollywood has nothing better to offer us than to gloss over the fact that no one lives forever and instead just tells us that everyone lives happily ever after. But biblical stories tell us the stories of men and women of faith. Men and women whose hopes and dreams are not fully realized in this life and they spend their last breath looking toward a better hope. That is certainly true in the final chapter of Genesis. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 49 and chapter 50. We're going to spend a couple verses in, excuse me, in, in chapter 49, and then we're going to look at the final chapter of Genesis. Genesis 50 tells us about the death and the burial of Jacob and of Joseph. And, and if we're honest, uh, these, these verses can be relatively depressing for us if we're just taking a short glance at them. Be relatively depressing because they remind us of the curse of death that enters into the world because of sin in Genesis chapter 3. But as we look at them closer, as we look at what God has to teach us from these verses, we can see that this is actually a chapter of hope. It's a chapter that looks to the future with confidence, it looks beyond death to what comes next. For us waiting for what comes for us in Christ Jesus. You see, it would be wrong for us to, to look at, at Genesis chapter 50 as just about death. Because it's not. In fact, the most important part of Genesis chapter 50 is what comes after death. The burial of Jacob and Joseph. It is in, this, in their burials that we see instructions that tell us of their faith. Tells us of their hope. Tells us of their confidence in God's promises. And this morning, as we look at these two stories, we're going to see this confidence. We're going to see this hope. We're going to see this faith summed up. As we tie a bow on Genesis, we're going to try to ask three questions of ourselves. Every single one of us has to ask these questions that sum up not just this passage, but Genesis As a whole, as we look at our confidence, as we look at where our hope is, we look at where our faith is. If you have a Bible, uh, open up to Genesis chapter 49. We're going to start in verse 28. Now, we're going to start right where we left off last week. Last week, we were in Genesis chapter 49. And even though we just focused on this prophecy about Judah... The the entirety of Genesis chapter 49 looks at Jacob's final moments in life. And he is pronouncing certain predictions about the future of each and every one of his sons. He pronounces these blessings over his sons. And that comes to a conclusion in verse 27. And in verse 28, he has all of them surrounding him. And he addresses them one final time. Please follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 28. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to them. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. With Jacob's last breath, he has one final request, and that is to bring his body to Canaan and to bury his body in the same place as Abraham's body was found, as Isaac's body was found. His one request is to not bury him in Egypt. Now, this might seem logical to us because he spent most of his time in Canaan, but there's another thing that we have to to look at, and that is from the context of ancient Israel, ancient Egypt, and just really the ancients in generals. Burial location was extremely important for ancient people, they believed in multiple gods. They believed that there were multiple gods who existed, and each of these different gods ruled over a different, defined, limited territory. And so if you were to bury yourself or be buried in a specific location, then you were in one sense entrusting your body to the God of that territory. You're entrusting your body as well as your afterlife to this God. And so for Jacob... See, hears of, or as he sees, his his death is coming soon. Burial in Egypt is completely unappealing. Jacob doesn't want to be buried in Egypt. He doesn't want to entrust his body to false gods. He wants it to be buried in Canaan. He wants to entrust his body to the God of the Promise. This is a, a powerful declaration. Of his allegiance. He's saying, My allegiance lies with God, not with the false gods of Egypt. But even more than just allegiance, it's also a declaration of faith. He's declaring his faith that God will one day bring his family back from Egypt and bring them to Canaan. He's declaring that one day God will keep his promise of giving his family the land of Canaan, even as it was promised to Abraham decades before. And ultimately, this is a declaration of his faith that God would one day save all humanity through the Messiah, one of his descendants, generations from now. And it is with that final request that Jacob passes away. The text, as we read it, emphasizes his connection to Egyptian high society. We see this in the response of the Egyptians after he dies. All of the Egyptians in those days would have their bodies preserved, but only the rich, only the nobles, the honorable would have their bodies embalmed. And that's exactly what happens to Jacob. The people of Egypt mourn over him. They mourn for 70 long days, which, as we look at historical records, 72 days was the length of mourning for a pharaoh. This is a man who is highly connected to Egyptian high society, to the pharaoh, because of his time in Egypt. And in fact, he's a man who has really every earthly reason to be buried in Egypt. He's lived there for the past 17 years. Travel back and forth was a lot more difficult in those days than it is today. He's connected to the king. He's accumulated a great amount of wealth. His family is finally reconciled to one another in Egypt. They're finally back together. And they're growing increasingly in number. Egypt has been very good to him. But Jacob did not lose sight of his faith. And so he declared that he wanted to be buried in Canaan. As we see in the next few verses, that's exactly what happens. Pick up in verse four. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, my father has made me swear saying, I'm about to die in my tomb that I have hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up to bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, And his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad. They said, This is a grieving mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Miraziram. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in a cave in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, where Abram bought from the which Abraham bought with a field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. You see, after mourning for his father, Joseph approaches Pharaoh with his father's final request. He approaches his father and says, you know what? I I have this final request of my father. I have to, to fulfill this. And Pharaoh trusts Joseph. And so he says, you know what, go ahead, go to Canaan, fulfill your father's last wish. And he sends him with his large burial procession. Just note the size of this. There are three companies that go to Canaan to bury Jacob. First company is Joseph and the nobility of Egypt, representatives of Pharaoh's household. Second, we see Joseph's brothers travel. And third and finally, there is a military escort as a sign of gratitude from Pharaoh to Jacob's family for all that he has done for them. What's interesting as we look at this is that the easiest way for a person to get from Egypt to Canaan is to just follow the Mediterranean Sea and then take uh, excuse me, and then start to head east toward Hebron when it's appropriate. But that's not what happens here. This is not the way that Joseph traveled when he was sold into slavery. This is not the way that the family traveled when they immigrated down into Egypt. Instead, the burial procession heads across the wilderness, heads around the south end of the Dead Sea, and ends up entering Canaan from the east. This is what it means when it talks about beyond the Jordan. It's the land to the east of the Jordan River. In other words, what's happening here in this burial procession is that the people of Israel are taking the exact same route that they would take centuries later during the exodus. Jacob's burial procession is his own miniature exodus out of Egypt. In fact, there are a number of parallels between Genesis chapter 50 and the eventual exodus of the people of Israel. I'll just mention two more In the Exodus story, Moses approaches Pharaoh and asks to bring out the children, the flocks and the herds out into the desert to worship God and Pharaoh denies them. This, of course, eventually leads to the actual Exodus itself. Here in Genesis chapter 50, who stays behind? It's the children, the flocks and the herds. Another parallel that we see in genesis chapter 50 we see mention of chariots and horsemen uh, uh, going with jacob's procession to canaan this is a unique phrase chariots and horsemen it's not used commonly in the bible until thousand years later after this moment in fact this is the first time this phrase chariots and horsemen is mentioned in the bible and the next several references for hundreds of years are in reference to the Exodus when the chariots and horsemen of Egypt no longer traveled with Israel but pursued Israel to the Red Sea. This is more than just a a, a neat coincidence. Remember the original audience of Genesis This is the Exodus generation that Moses is writing to. They're fresh off their own escape from Egypt, from the chariots and the horsemen of Egypt. And for them, this is a reminder of their own calling. Just as Jacob is facing the end of his life, responds with obedience and with faith, with confidence that God is going to provide for him. This is a calling for the Exodus generation to respond with faith. To respond with obedience, to respond with confidence to God's calling for them. The same is true for us, is it not? Jacob's death is not just something to skim over so you can finish the book of Genesis. It's a powerful challenge to us, asking us, are we actually living by faith? Are we living by faith like Joseph is here? Are we committed to following God in life and in death? As we find ourselves in our own miniature Egypt, are we willing to declare our allegiance to God or to Egypt, to the world? In our final day, where will our faith, where will our allegiance lie? As we stand at the end of Jacob's life, we see where his allegiance lies. It lies with the God of the promise. But we also have to ask a tough question. What do we make of Jacob? He's quite the complex character in the book of Genesis. This is a man who is deceitful. He is selfish. He is a coward. He has encountered God in ways that many of us probably could only imagine of. And yet he walks away with little change from those encounters. He's a man who plays favorites with his children. and That leads to great strife and hurt and division in his family. He's willing to sacrifice some of his children to protect his favorites. This is not exactly the resume of a biblical hero, a biblical saint. But at the same time that we see these moments of of just frustration with Jacob, we also see moments of power, moments of of faith that leave us in awe. This is a man who desired the promise of God more than anything. This is a man who wrestled with God, who followed God god who ends his life on a high note of shining faith this is a man who finishes well a man who desires to be buried in canaan not to be buried in egypt this is a man whose life is filled with failure after failure after failure sin after sin after sin and yet in the end he clings to god at the end of his life, he refuses to be defined by his sin, but instead decides to be defined by his faith. What about you? In fact, that's our, our first question this morning. Will you be defined by your sin, by your past, or by your faith? It's a question that echoes throughout the book of Genesis. Abraham and or excuse me, Adam and Eve. They have to ask, are they going to be defined by their past sins against God, the rebellion against God in the garden, or by their faith in God's promise for the future? Abraham and Sarah, will they be defined by their sins with Hagar or by their faith in God's promise for the future? Isaac and Rebecca, will they be defined by their sins of favoritism with their children or by their faith in God's promises for the future? In each of these situations, as we look back at Genesis, Genesis doesn't minimize the sins of these people, but we see that that is not what defines them. They are defined by their faith, not by their sin, not by their past. What about you? What about you? Perhaps you've lived a life that is filled with sin Your sin is apparent to you more than you would recognize or want to to admit. And far more people know about your sin than you would like. You don't have to be defined by it. You do not have to be defined by your sin or by your past. If there's one thing that we have learned from the book of Genesis, it is that God is a God of second chances. God is a God of third chances, of 10,000th chances, and on and on and on. Will you be defined by your past? Or by your faith? In fact, this question, this decision, faces us each and every day. Each and every day, we have to ask, are we going to seek God in faith, or are we going to cower back in sin? Each time that we fail God, each time that we fall away from God, are we going to seek forgiveness in faith, or are we going to resign to sin? Will you be defined by your past or by your faith? For Jacob, the answer was his faith. And he shines like a star in Genesis because of that faith. But it's not so simple for his sons. Let's keep reading in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of your servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you met evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Moments after this burial procession, after it's returned from uh, from Canaan back to Egypt, Joseph's brothers panic. They panic because they wonder if they aren't really actually forgiven by their brother Joseph because of all the evil things that they did to him decades before. You ever felt that way with God? You ever felt that way with God, wondering if we're not really forgiven by God? Wondering if God is going to take back his forgiveness if we screw up again? Wondering if God is punishing us because of our sin? It's a way of thinking that is all too common in us. Where we doubt God's forgiveness, it betrays in us a wrong view of God, just like Joseph's brothers had a wrong view of him. You see, they ask Joseph for forgiveness and Joseph actually never gives it to him, at least not in chapter 50. He never extends this forgiveness because he forgave them years ago. Instead, he extends to them assurance and he extends to them a right view of who God is. As with decades earlier, Joseph describes God's sovereign goodness for their family. He describes God's love for their family, for God's people. And he says that this means that God will use anything and everything, including the bad, including the pain, including the hurt, for the good of his people. As we look back at at all of Genesis, hasn't Genesis taught us that as well? Genesis has taught us that God uses the pain. God uses the hurt. God uses the times where we wonder where on earth he is for good, for the inclusion of the faith of those who are his people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, each and every one of them, God uses pain, God uses hardship, God uses waiting and suffering to shape, mold, and transform them. So that they can draw near to him. That's what Genesis is really teaching us. Genesis is trying to remind us that God uses our hardship for good in our lives. But note also that Joseph confesses it's God's role to judge humanity. It's not his. From an earthly perspective, Joseph would have had every opportunity, every right to do what he uh, to, to pay back his, his brothers because of what they had done to him. He would have every right to exact judgment upon his brothers. And indeed, that's, that's what we want, isn't it? When we have been hurt, one of the hardest things for us to do is to let go of our hurt, to let go of our pain and to give it to God, to entrust it to him. And yet Joseph when given the opportunity to lash out at his brothers, simply says, am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? Joseph's words are a sharp contrast to the beginning of the book of Genesis. I just noticed this this past week. It's it's so fascinating. Genesis starts with one path that all of us can walk down, and it ends with another path. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 5 says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The end of the book of Genesis, Joseph proudly, confidently declares, am I in the place of God? Saying, I'm going to let God stay on his throne rather than trying to be God. And yet Genesis chapter 3 starts with Adam and Eve trying to be God, not trusting in God, but instead going on their own. You see, Adam and Eve are faced with a similar question in Genesis chapter three. Are we content trusting God or do we want more from God? Do we actually want to be God? And that's our second question this morning. As we look at Genesis as a whole, are you content trusting God or do you want to be God? Will you seek to be God or to trust in God? Again, it's asked throughout the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve were not content in trusting in God. They wanted to be God. The story of the Tower of Babel is all about humanity trying to build a tower to reach to the heavens so that they can cast God out of the heavens and ascend to his throne. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their families all face hardship that forced them to ask the question, are we going to trust God? Ask yourself this morning, am I going to trust God or is that not enough for me? Do I want to take the place of God in my life, meeting out judgment for those who have wronged me? Do I want to take the place of God in my life, living solely for my desires, my gratification, or am I going to entrust to God what is right? Am I going to echo Abraham from Genesis chapter 18 and say, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Will you seek to be God or to trust in God? And for Joseph, the answer was clear. God was firmly seated on the throne of his life. And that was, the true, that was true right now at the beginning of, of chapter 50. And it's also true at the end of chapter 50. And the final few verses of Genesis chapter 50 says this. So Joseph remained in Egypt. He in his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Sixty years after his father dies, Joseph himself dies. He's near the end of his life. He's lived a good life. This is a good life by Israelite standards. He gets to see his great-grandchildren. And he uh, lives a good life by Egyptian standards. Egyptian writings say that the, the ideal age for a person was 110 years old. And that's exactly how old he is here. Joseph has lived in, in Egypt 93 years most of those years were blessed, were fruitful, and he lived as the second most powerful man in the nation. But 93 years or earlier, he was sold as a slave by his brothers. In fact, with the exception of carrying his his father back to bury him in Canaan, he only or he excuse me, he never returns to Canaan. He only returns to bury his father and that's it. The rest of his life he spends in Egypt. And yet at the end of his life, he requests, just like his father, to be buried in Canaan. In fact, Hebrews 11, when it talks about all of the faith of the people of the Old Testament, looks at this moment, his desire to be buried in Canaan, looks at this moment as the most important, most defining moment of his faith. Hebrews 11 says this, By faith, Joseph... At the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. You see, Joseph had every legitimate reason to be buried in Egypt. He was a man of importance there. He had bad memories of Canaan. He had been given everything the world could ever offer him when he lived in Egypt. What's more, God had blessed him in Egypt. His children were half Egyptian. From nearly every angle, it made complete sense for Joseph to be buried in Egypt. And yet, like his father, he declares his allegiance with the God of the promise. He declares his allegiance with the God of Israel, not with the God of the Egyptians. He has faith in the God of that promise and not in the riches of the world. And so he requests that his bones be buried in Canaan. There's a striking difference here. Joseph asked that he one day be buried in Canaan when the people of Israel return, whereas Jacob was immediately buried in the promised land after his death. Joseph's declaration is an even greater declaration of faith because he has such confidence that he doesn't have to go right now. He believes that God will take the entire people of Israel out of Egypt back to the promised land. And his bones wait for 450 years before they finally arrive in Canaan, and then more years until they're finally buried. Joshua 24 tells us this, as for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel had brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem, and the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of joseph joseph is a man who is faced with temptation each and every day it's the same temptation that we are faced with as well will we choose god or egypt and that's our final question this morning will we choose god or egypt is our allegiance with god or is it with egypt Joseph answers that question definitively. This question answered or asked throughout the book of Genesis. Though it's not always Egypt that stands in opposition to God. Lot was forced to ask, will I trust God or will I run to the riches of Sodom, the power of Gomorrah? Abraham was asked, will I trust God in the midst of famine or will I run to Egypt? Will I run to Abimelech for comfort and safety? Isaac was asked the exact same question in famine. Will I trust God in famine or will I run to Abimelech for safety? Jacob was forced to ask, do I trust God to prosper me or will I resort to trickery and deceit against my uncle Laban? And that is a question for us this morning as well. Egypt is a temptation to do things in opposition to God's way. It is the expediency of Abraham and Sarah's decision for Abraham to sleep with Hagar for a son rather than waiting on God's timing. It is the choosing of the comforts of the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah rather than the desert where God says He will provide like Abraham. It is being satisfied with the riches of Egypt rather than being chosen, rather than being buried in Canaan like Jacob. And Joseph. And so this morning ask yourself. Will you choose Egypt? Or God? Will you chase after the desires and the loves of this world? Will you live a life that looks no different than the rest of this world? Or will you declare your allegiance to God? Will you bow to Caesar? To Pharaoh? Or will you bow to the king of Of Kings, this passage reminds us that we are to be a people set apart. That we are to be a people that are the bride of Christ. That we are to be the church. Or we can choose Egypt. Will you choose Egypt or God? Those are the questions facing us as we close Genesis. Will we be defined by our past or by our faith? Will we seek to be God or seek to trust in God? And will we choose Egypt or will we choose God? And I think as we close, there's just one final question that really sums up this entire series that each of us has to ask this morning. As we look at at the testimony of Genesis, ask this question. Have you seen enough from God to trust him moving forward? Have you seen enough from God to trust him moving forward? Have I seen enough? Have you seen enough? To be very candid, this is a very unique season for our church. This is one of the the final Sundays for some of you here this morning. God's calling you elsewhere over the next couple weeks. And for some of you, that's a part of your plan. For others, this is a, an unexpected twist in the road. In either case, uncertainty lies ahead. And as you look toward that uncertainty, Genesis asks you, have you seen enough to trust God moving forward? For others of us, our life is no less uncertain, is it? It is filled with bumps. It is filled with question marks. It is filled with changed plans. It's filled with times where we wonder where God is, whether he still walks with us. And we wonder how this fits into God's plan. Ask yourself, have you seen enough from God to trust him moving forward? It's the same question the saints of Genesis had to ask each and every day day. It's the same question the saints in Moses' day had to ask. Have we seen enough from God? Have we seen enough from God to trust him? In fact, Hebrews 11, all about that faith. Hebrews 11 describes the faith of the people in the Old Testament, not seen primarily in their day-to-day obedience, but in their expectation their confidence in what was to come. Their confidence that God holds the future. Hebrews 11 says this, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. But as it is, they desire a better future country that is a heavenly one therefore god is not ashamed to be called their god for he has prepared for them a city Have you seen enough from God to trust him moving forward, whatever that future may hold for you? Are you able, like the saints in Genesis, to greet the promises of God from afar? To recognize that even though we may live in Egypt right now, Egypt is not our home. To desire a better country, a better hope. To live a life of faith, So that God is not ashamed to be called your God. Have we seen enough to trust God in creation? Have we seen enough of God's grace in, in the rebellion of Adam and Eve. Where he makes a plan for them and for all of humanity to right creation. Have we seen enough to trust him? Have we seen enough to trust God, when He picks Abraham's family as a plan to save all of humanity? Have we seen enough of God's grace when He continually bears with the sins of Abraham and his descendants so that we can trust Him? Have we seen enough of God's grace on the cross to trust Him? We've been going through this series called Origins. Because it looks at the origins of our faith. As we look back on the origins of our faith. It's our prayer that we move forward. To the future God is calling us. With confidence. With hope. With faith. Let us as a church. As individuals. Continue to press on. Toward something better. Than anything the world can ever offer us. Hebrews 11 closes with this. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. The saints of Genesis look to the cross. The saints of today look to the cross. God has provided something better for us than the the beauty of Genesis and that is the cross because God has given us a better hope. Let us long for the day when we can experience it fully. Have you seen enough from God to trust him moving forward let's pray Lord as we look at your word as we look at the ways that you have worked through it that you have moved in it we ask that you would give us the strength to have the same faith as Joseph to have the same faith as Jacob as Abraham and Isaac as Noah as Sarah, as Rebecca, as Leah, as Rachel. Help us to look to you and look to the cross and from there to move forward in confidence in our good and gracious God. It's in his name we pray, amen.